0: Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry.
1: Hey, y'all, it's Bridget here. Meet Daniel Singer, the visionary founder of Filthy Food Co., where innovation meets flavor in the most extraordinary ways. But what sets Daniel apart is his extraordinary journey One where his dyslexia becomes his superpower. His passion for hospitality community became a driving force, and his love for family became the heart of his culinary adventure. So sit back, relax, grab yourself a delicious, filthy Bloody Mary, and enjoy this episode. Daniel, welcome to Served Up. It's a real honor and pleasure to have you on the show today.
2: It's lovely to see you. Thank you so much for giving me a platform to tell the story and have a proper catch up. I'm excited.
1: I'm excited too. Can you tell our listeners originally where you're from and how did you wind up in Miami?
2: Yeah, um, I'm originally from London, from England. Um, this wonderful wet little island <laughs> about the size of Michigan uh, with 66 million people on it. So you're sort of all living in these tiny little terraced houses and and all living on top of each other. And I am well, quite nomadic by n- nature. I like to travel. I like to plug into different environments and um, and I just always loved America. I oh, And I so believe in the promise of America, you know, that no matter where you start or where you're from, if you if you take some risks and you work hard and provide opportunities, one day you could make something of yourself. And I really dug that. I really felt like um I could come to America and maybe make something of myself if I worked hard. And and so I started coming here uh in my early teens with family and then and then later teens by myself and and then uh arrived here first of all in the in the early nineties um know, I was young and good looking had a full head of hair and an accent and it was like it was amazing and then back to the UK and then and back out here gosh around 2004 just after Kim and I my wife and I had just had our first child and I thought god if I'm ever going to do it this is my time to try to come to America and see if I could build something
1: and you did you know you absolutely did so can you tell the listeners you know, what is your background
2: yeah i well i have to say it would be remiss of me to to not say my background started as a very and am an incredibly dyslexic human being. You know, I'm, I really, really deeply struggled in school. And uh, for anybody that's, I, we call it now neurodiverse. And and we use and things like, you know, we learn in, we have learning differences as opposed to difficulties or disabilities. But back then you were sort of labeled as somebody that had a learning disability or was stupid in school. And you, you sort of grow up. You know, fighting against the system that doesn't necessarily accept you. So all of my mates that grew up entrepreneurial are either uh, or grew up dyslexic are either entrepreneurial, they are special forces, or they're in prison. You know, so in a way, you um, you find a way to operate outside a system that doesn't accept you. So I was always very entrepreneurial as a kid, always um, inviting friends over and setting up you know, uh, different events in my back garden and getting them to pay to come in. And if they knocked the tins down, I would give them the sweets that I had sort of the candy that I sort of saved up. So I was always incredibly entrepreneurial. Um, when I reached a certain stage of my life, I wanted to explore this more creative part of my being. And I always loved sitting in the, in the movie theater as a kid and sitting in the dark and just feeling like anything was possible and having a sort of escapism route through through going to the movies. And so at one point I thought, you know what, I'm going to go to drama school in England because all of the great actors, Gary Oldman and Daniel Craig, Daniel Day Lewis, everybody goes through drama school. So I set myself this task, could an entrepreneurial and a very dyslexic kid end up speaking Shakespeare? Could could I you know, which is really like climbing Mount Everest with one leg, you know, when you can't really read, how are you going to go and, and learn scripts? How are you going to go and, and, and speak Shakespeare? So I set myself this task of getting into the Guildhall School of Music and Drama. And those three years in drama school, I, I was accepted it completely changed my life. I learned the keys to language. I learned, um, why I was the way that I was and, and, uh, how I could. Um, utilize all of the things that could be somewhat perceived as as challenges to become my most authentic self and what i learned during drama school was that you are most powerful in the moment and that feeling that philosophy that uh, achievement set the rest of my life in motion everything for me was born at the moment that i was accepted into that school learned the keys to language and found a way of forming a group to do something magnificent. I think that's the main thing, right? Sometimes we all feel like we're going through this journey alone. And putting on a play or something like that, you you just start with words on a page, and everyone's given a character, but you don't really know. And it could go anywhere. If you just trust each other and respect each other, and commit to being present and in the moment, and we were able to put on all of these incredible shows, I was recruited by the Royal Shakespeare Company out of drama school and then spent the next five years doing theater.
1: You're kidding.
2: Yeah, it was beautiful. I'm learning amazing. so much about you. It's it wonderful. Was amazing. It's God, it was amazing. I need to
1: understand how we get from Shakespeare to Olives. It's just it's blowing my mind. It's absolutely blowing my mind. But I, your story is, is so beautiful because you really leaned into, it sounds like your dyslexia, you know, to open up something inside of you mm. that not all of us maybe have or recognize And you said something that is so was so impactful, you know, to really the magic's to be in that moment. Right. Completely. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah. So tell me uh, more about your love for theater. We share this Daniel. Oh, I'm not an actor. I didn't go, but I love the theater. I love I think the theater.
2: it's the most beautiful art form because it's human beings in a story. I, I remember I'm going through drama school and I'm doing this, this play about the Russian revolution in 1917, which was, and don't forget, like, I grew up in a household where there was no culture, right? There was no storytelling. There was no theater. There was no um, music playing from eclectic bands. There, There was just not where my, that was not my life, right? And I I so deeply believe in this, the power of storytelling. I so deeply believe in it. And I discover this this person called Oliver Sayer, right? So I'm in drama school. I'm I don't really know my arse from my elbow. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm navigating text and how to um understand character and all of these types of things. And I'm doing this play, this play set in the Russian Revolution. So I go to the British theatre um and they say you've got to go to the British library and read all of this stuff on this time period so i discover this book by this guy called oliver sayer and it's basically this american theater on uh, impresario he goes to moscow arts theater gets on a boat travels for 3 3 months gets there to try to take this russian um stanislavsky the actor studio this method that and Brando used, used right? And take it from there and bring it back to America. But he thinks it's, the Moscow Arts Theatre is going to be burnt to the ground. So he's like, I've got to get over there. I've got to you know, take this, this, this philosophy and bring it back to America. And when he gets there, there is blood on the street everywhere. And the theatre is packed. It's absolutely packed, packed every night where he thinks it's going to be an empty place. And after three or four weeks of going to the theatre every night, he turns to this elderly couple and through a translator, who come to the theatre to escape the horrors of life, as he can hear gunfire outside. And they say, no, no, we come to the theatre to try to understand it. And there That's is... A, powerful. It's so... It is such a beautiful place for storytelling and honesty, and you get to feel all of these things. And I found, when I was trying to get into drama school, a place that I've I there's nowhere in the world that I feel more comfortable than when I'm in a the theater I can't explain it it doesn't make any sense not logical I just go there and human beings agree to watch a story and the actors commit to it and you feel so much stuff and I just think it's such an important and beautiful art form and like I said discovering it feeling like I had a home Going to drama school, getting recruited by the Royal Shakespeare Company, touring around for five years doing theater was like such an important chapter of my life, and I'm so grateful for it and I find such incredible parallels between the theater community and the bar community, actors on stage and bartenders so I've almost found like my next my next home my my next real place in the world amongst this community and I love it
1: that is. Just wonderful. I want to unpack a bit about what you just said. You said you find some parallels between the bartenders and the, you know, kind of the theater world. Can you explain that?
2: Yes. Yeah. Theater and film are very different, right? But the camera has the ability to to zoom in on your eyeball or to get a close up, so you're drawing the audience in to you through the lens and the distance. When you're in the theater, you have to make sure the people in the back row can hear you and feel you, that they understand the story. So you have to, instead of bringing everything toward you, you have to bring, uh, push everything out of you to the back of the room. And so I would be, the last play I did was at the old Vic Theater. And, um, and there was a night I was really sick. I sort of was really had flu. and I'm laying in the wings about to go on stage. And you can hear the cues and the second i'm ready to go on stage i'm like up full of energy walk out on stage feel the audience like absolutely commit to it right leave everything on the on the stage because that's your job you want you have to love people enough to give them everything of yourself and leave it on the stage and then when i was exiting the scene I'd go back to the wings and I'd fall onto the floor and I'd like lay there and I always think of bartenders and the bar being that stage where you have to send all of your energy out and you have to notice everything you have to be so generous to the audience and you have to take care of them and you have to love them and you have to be authentic and you have to be honest because they deserve that and it's really about the human thing And I just really find that whenever I would go into bars and I was around people that really meant for hospitality, that love through service, I always felt that kindness and I always felt that warmth. And I always felt that it didn't matter what happened outside of that bar, the shitty day that I'd had or the, the, the ups and downs of life, or it didn't matter what happened outside of that theater. When we went into both of those places, the people that were there to tell the story, create the atmosphere, love us if they were really present and really committed to being in that moment, they would make my day better and make me feel something that I never felt before I walked into there. And I, so I just found this community that was full of a lot of pirates and poets and all sorts of like incredible yeah. people. And it's exactly the same. It's exactly the same thing. And so for me, I'm, I'm very grateful to be part of this community as I was to be part of that community. It's beautiful.
1: Well, from there, it is beautiful. It is beautiful. How did you become part of the community? Let's jump a little bit forward to yeah. America and Filthy and all the things. You really became um, a flavor expert.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, How did I,
1: that happen, Daniel?
2: Well, here's, my wife and I uh, had Eden. My wife became pregnant with our eldest, Eden, who's now 19. And, um, in that nine months, she was evolving into being a mom, I was evolving into being a dad. So the second Nina was born, I felt the responsibility of being a great dad. And for me, that meant providing opportunities, um, being able to create security and and to be able to protect everybody. I'm very big on that. And so I thought to myself, gosh, how can I do that? Treading the boards, doing theater, earning 200 bucks a week, right? How could I do that, right? If a I was going to work or not work, depending on whether a casting director thought I looked right or sounded right or whatever it was. So in those nine months, I was like, man, I have to take control of my ability to provide. And as much as I love this journey and really deeply loved it, I didn't think it was fair to take my wife and my newborn son at that time on that journey with me. And so I had invested in a friend's business in America, in Michigan. With a few thousand dollars that I'd had. So I phoned him up. He had moved to Florida, became part of this pickle company. And I said to him, you know, how's that business doing? You know? And he said, Why, why do you want to know? And I said, Well, I've just had a baby. I got a you know, I'm I I need to make more money. How's it doing? And he said, Dan, it's doing really, really badly. (laughs) So that moment it's kind of not what you want to hear when you've just had a baby, right? So I was like, shit, okay. So I convinced my wife, and we've been together for 24 years. I said to her, when Eden was born, let's go to America. I think I could turn this business around. Come with me; it'll be an adventure. Let's see what will happen. So we moved to Florida. I get involved in the business that is doing really badly, and I just was very curious. You know, why do you do that like that? Why is that that like, way? It's been like that for 30 years. Yeah, but it doesn't work. What if we do this? What if we do that? And because the business was sort of on its arse. Everybody was very open to me trying stuff. And within four or five months, the business went from being non-profitable to being profitable. It went from being a really joyless place to being a really joyful place. And we started to build something together. And then one of the owners that also um, had investment in the pickle company also owned a meat company. said, hey, you did really well with the pickle company. Why don't you come over to this meat company? And um I built and scaled that business and took it from five states to 30 states and then sold that business. Amazing. So, uh, my entrepreneurial um, real, really wishes where I live. You know, I'm, I feel like I'm, other than as an actor, I was like completely unemployable, right? So, very dyslexic, very, uh, you know, I just, I like to drive, you know, move by the beat of my own drum. So, I turned that business around. We sold it at the same time, my brother, was coming back from Iraq. He was a um, he was a documentarian that was embedded with a force recon unit at the height of the Iraqi war. So, one guy would go in the front part of a seven man force recon team. One in the front, one left, one right. Mark would come in with a camera and a sidearm. Uh, two other guys and a sniper. What? So he does that. Yes, yeah, so he's in Iraq for two and a half years. Wow. Transitioning to being back here in in America, you know. And I have such incredible respect for for the military and 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 the fact that they stand in front of bullets that are made for us and uh and get to live this life because there are people there that are making sacrifices. Right? So Mark had Mark had uh, come back and we were sitting in my mini. I had a Mini Cooper at the time because I'm British and <laughs> that's kind of what you drive. It's standard operating procedure. <laughs> you get your Mini and then you crack on. So I was driving around in my mini and Mark was sitting in my mini room me, and I sort of pitched him the idea for Filthy, you know, I'd sold and scaled this food business. He had just come back from Iraq. He was making this huge transition. And I said to him, look, I've been sitting in bars and I think there's a huge opportunity because there was this incredible renaissance in cocktails, right? This is 2006, end of 2006. I'm like, people are moving towards fresh ingredients. They're moving towards fresh herbs, fresh juices. And olives are in these big gallons. They're really oily. They're salty. They're shitty. They don't add anything to the guest experience. All these bartenders are taking such pride in what they're doing. They're getting educated. They're they're, they're becoming mixologists. It's this whole thing that's happening, right? And I said, and olives have this huge market and there's no love. There's no love in this category at all. Why? When you're transitioning, right? Just come with me. Come look at olives with me. I think it's going to take us three or four months to look at olives he said you know i've jumped out of airplanes two thousand times i've broken world records cave diving i've made this documentary where i lived homeless in new york for you know seven years i've been in iraq and afghanistan you want to start a cocktail garnish company and i said i do actually mate and he goes i thought i was fucking crazy
1: (laughs) i love it
2: (laughs) so we thought It was going to take us three or four months, but there are 700 varieties of olives on the planet, cultivatable olives across six continents. So he and I spent the next two years looking at 230 varieties of olives. And we're very relentless as human beings, but it was also really an opportunity for him and I, we loved each other because we were brothers, but did we really like each other as adults? So on that journey, we realized not only did we love and like each other, but maybe we could build something together. And we came back to America with just four barrels of naturally cured olives. Everybody else uses chemicals to cure the fruit. And uh, we built the business for the next three years, not with the same four barrels because that would have been really depressing, but for the next (laughs) three years out of the back of my wife's minivan here in Florida, just going from bar to bar. And Mark would have a backpack full of jars of olives and go around the bars of New York for three years until we picked up our first distributor.
1: That is wild. And what was the reaction of the bars when you would walk in with your olives?
2: Yeah. that Like I said, it's really a people business.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so here in Florida, as an example, one of my first ever accounts was the Florida room and John Lemaire was behind the bar and um, was just like, yeah, tell me about it. We've been looking at olives and we could only get this stuff. And we started going down this olive oil journey and we wanted to do something better. We felt there was really just this, this, this crap that was out there. So what have you been doing? Tell me about it. And he was just so curious. He was like, um, you know, tell me about the, the, the flowering of the plants and the oldest trees you looked at and all of this stuff. And and he said, who do I order it from? Which distributors do I get it from? I'm going to take, he tried everything and he was like, I'm going to take it. So I was like, cool. He goes, who, who should I phone? Should I phone? You know, who's distributing it? And I was like, oh, here's my card. Call me whenever you need olives, whatever you need, I'll drop it off. And then he told somebody who told somebody and this. And then over the next three years, it just really became a total bartender's word of mouth brand. I would make deliveries out of Kim's car. We would basically take the kids to school in the morning. I would take the seats out of the car, fill the car up with, um, with olives that were out that we in had the, in the garage. Um, I'd make all my deliveries, I'd put the seats back in, pick the kids up from school, take the seats back out, and make deliveries at night for three years. That's like a thousand days, right, before uh, we picked up our first distributor here in Florida. And like I said, people were just so incredibly kind. They saw the effort. They saw the people that we were. They saw how much we cared about what it is that we did, the process to get to where to produce the products that we do. And they just were kind to us, so kind to us, embrace us and just told people. And that's that's how we grew the business.
1: Amazing. Well, thank goodness for John.
2: Yes, exactly. Exactly. He was
1: a friend, so I
2: yeah.
1: think he probably watches over your company very closely. <laughs> um I, I, let's talk about the name filthy. Yeah. Where did that come from?
2: So it's so interesting. In England, it's always pissing down, right? It's raining all the time. So as little kids, um, my brother is only 10 months younger than me. So as kids, we were always outside playing and being really happy and going all into everything. And my mum was always like, look at you, you're bloody filthy. The pair of you, you're bloody filthy. We're just about to go out or people are coming over and you're filthy, you're bloody filthy. So filthy was always the way that he and I looked at life. You know, don't dip your toe in, don't get a little bit dirty, get filthy in everything because it's where the joy is. It's like commit fully to the moment, commit. Commit fully to the experience. And then going through drama school and realizing you're most powerful in the moment and just trying to live in the moment. When we were talking about the name for the company, we're like, we should call it Filthy. And for a long time, this is the thing about language. And like I said, being dyslexic and then getting the keys to language, there is always this antiquated view on language. And then culture moves and shifts and creates. And words that meant something in the past mean something different now and it's constantly moving. And when we were looking at like calling it filthy and you look at brands like Virgin or Coca-Cola or whatever it may be, whatever they meant in the beginning, people are like, what does that mean? What is that about? Why is that like that? But then there are always people that immediately get it or feel it. They don't know why. And we always say like, people are either filthy or they're not filthy. And it's got nothing to do with your income or the type of places you go. It's you either we're in beautiful top 50 bars in the world and we're in dive bars where there's blood on the floor every night you are filthy or you're not filthy and that's got nothing to do with anything other than your energy and your perspective on life so the people that get it they they immediately get it and but it's really just down to our attitude and the fact that our mum always said you're bloody filthy because we we're always getting covered in mud and playing and being so happy
1: It is such a clever name, but you're right. It is an emotional draw when you read it and you see it and you taste it, I think, is really when you understand. And so when we talk about taste and flavor, so you went from olives and then what? How did you expand and how did you know what to expand to? Like, what was your strategic plan there?
2: People introduce us to other people. I think the main differentiator was when we looked at olives, It's a hard little stone fruit that hangs on a tree, right? But it's the same family as a peach. It's a single stone surrounded by flesh. The only difference is you can't, you can't eat it from the tree. It's very hard. You've got to ferment it. So everybody was using chemicals and taking four days to do that. They were stripping the fruit of everything that we love about olive oil. And what happened was the skin would thicken. The pores would close of the fruit. All the flavor and the love had been sucked out of it, basically. So a lot of people, everybody at any sort of scale, then add salt and water, salt, oil, water back into it to give it flavor and texture. So back in the day, whenever you'd make a martini and you use regular olives out of of the big gallons, you'd always get that oil slick on top, right? And that's because it was chemically cured, everything was stripped out of it. And then all this other stuff was added back in afterwards, but it would create that slick. So we. Naturally, cure everything for four months just with salt and water, as opposed to four days with chemicals. So, the basis of our business is patience, time, love. That's really it. Everything that we do, that's it. So, it takes a long time to do all of that stuff. But as we became people's partners around martinis or bloody marys, because they were using olives, this huge renaissance was happening in, uh, in, in American whiskey, this 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 revolution was happening. People were, it would go from like one and a half feet in a liquor store to sort of 10 feet to 20 feet worth of all of these expressions of American whiskey and um, different uh, aging and different um, casks and flavors. So we started looking at cherries because the other brands in the space were really made for bakers, not bartenders, right? They had been around for hundreds of years. They had single sweet notes as opposed to complexity. So we were like, wow, if people love the olives and they were their partners for some drinks, why can't we be their partners for other drinks? Whiskey's on crazy, so let's go and look at, look at cherries. What we discovered was that everybody was cooking cherries in stainless steel. So if ever you have um, cooking chicken teriyaki at home, right, let's just say, right, Anything that's got sugar in the sauce, the bottom of your pan goes black. That's just sugar burning, right? So, if you ever talk to any Italian um, pastry chefs or people that are making syrups or sauces, they always cook in copper because copper doesn't burn sugar and it transfers the heat in a completely different way. So, you can be much more delicate with the fruit. So, while we saw everybody cooking in stainless steel, we were like, what if we cook in copper? And we found this cherry that was very, very bitter on the vine. It's how it, protected itself from the birds. It was sort of really, really bitter. So we were like watching every cook all that wildness out of the fruit, lots of sugar, stainless steel, just like, so just creating the single sweet. But American whiskey, the sharpness of rye, we wanted to find something that was part garnish and part ingredient. So we knew the cherry had to be complex. So we wanted to have the sweetness on the front, but maintain that tart finish so that it could hold up in, Spirit Forward American Whiskey Cocktails. So we slow cooked cherries in these beautiful copper pots. They have this sweet front tart finish, very complex in the flavor. And we um, launched that product in 2013. And that year it became the first, It's the only garnish ever nominated for an award at Tales of the Cocktail. And we didn't know anybody. We had really just started out. We were just breaking out of, Miami, as as the bartenders that knew us were taking us to other markets, and that just really gave us such a lot of credibility around what we were doing, and the fact that we really deeply cared about all of the ingredients, and also our role within hospitality. Like we wanted to be people's partners in giving their guests a better experience. We wanted to know that they could rely on us and trust us, and that we would make deliveries at two o'clock in the morning if they were going to run out, and that we cared about it so deeply that they felt like that we had their backs in creating guest experience. And there was, wasn't anybody really in that space before. It wasn't about single products. It was about saying whether it was olives or cherries and then onions or olive brine or ultimately into the mixers, like if it's filthy, it's going to be legit. That's how we've always done everything. Never cut any corners, never compromise. Just do the right thing, whatever the cost.
1: Well, it's just so incredible you know what what you do and i know you and i had a, a lovely moment together at Tales of the Cocktail where we did catch up a bit at the Catalyst luncheon and i shared with you that you know my husband and i we we two have been together for 25 years and and we own a couple breweries in our small town we absolutely you know use your products because it brings even in my small town even for a teeny tiny little space where we don't have a full bar right it just makes our guests feel special. Absolutely. Period. Amen. Like it just makes the guests feel special that they have this beautiful little cherry, beautiful little olive. Or they know that we're using, you know, just quality ingredients, even though maybe we're not in the big city.
2: People are people, right? We all deserve deserve to be right. To be, be um taken care of, to be um have thoughtful people give them people nice things. So I think in a way, we always felt like what we did, most people wouldn't notice, but they would feel it. Mm-hmm. A way like there's all of this beautiful stuff around it. I can imagine when you introduce, make drinks for all your mates and you've got friends mm-hmm. coming over, you're just putting so much love and hospitality into it, right? We all do show love through service. We want to take care of people. So why would you want to throw something crappy in at the end. You wouldn't if you knew there was something different but people really took a, a lot of time and energy and 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 kindness into. And it would make you feel good about what you were serving and they would feel that from you. Right. So um I love the fact and I'm so grateful that you use filthy uh you know where you are and introduce us to your friends because it is always and will always be a word of mouth brand. It's just people telling other people.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. It it does have it does make you feel something when you know that there's something special that you're being offered that maybe you can't get down the street. Right. Uh, exactly. So, yeah, it's really quite cool. You know, something else that I believe that we bonded over and I do understand is being a parent in this industry. And yes. you are a father. Can we talk a little bit of what that is like for you? Maybe some lessons that you've learned. And how are you introducing your children to hospitality?
2: First of all, thank you. You're right. It's it's the it's the most important thing that I do. Um, I am very fortunate. I have three children. My eldest, my Eden, is 19. I have a 17 year old daughter called Anaya and a 14 year old daughter called Layla. And it's so interesting. You think when you're building a business from the back of your car, that you would be more risk averse, more fearful, right? You've got a lot of responsibilities. For me, it was the complete opposite. It was the complete opposite because um, I felt and feel such strength and such love from my wife and my three children that it enabled me to feel like I could do anything. And even if we were eating baked beans out of a tin or, you know, it was my kids that had the worst sneakers at police athletically, you know, basketball or shitty shorts or whatever it was that I never felt, I never felt judged or like I was a disappointment or that I wasn't doing all that I could. I felt nothing but strength and support and love from, from my wife and my children. And so because of that, I felt, Like I could do anything and that I would never let them down. And I think for me, being a dad is very important. You know, my dad left when I was 13. Uh, My brothers went with him, me, my mum, and my sister. So at 13, I sort of became the man of the house, right? So, so my, any protective instinct that I had was just so amplified. And, um, so in a way, family, this, my children, my wife, it's my opportunity to sort of create the foundation for for my kids and then their kids. And we hope, you know, you want to have a big place where everybody can come together and share holidays and share stories. So I think everything comes from from that. I can do anything because of them. And and therefore I, it's not my my work life and my personal life is not separate. You can't be massively I am built to try to build a global brand. I'm I'm Driven, I'm obsessed, I am a full-on human being. I, I always say like I'm constantly on fire, right? As I'm older, I've harnessed that energy into warmth and light. So I, I can harness it and I can do positive things with it. But there is a nature that is I don't find balance. So I just bring and have always brought my family into what I do. So rather than keeping it separate when then you know dad would come home and no my old kids all learned to drive forklifts since they were eight years old right they we, we turned the garage from an art place where if i was doing art projects into a place full of boxes full of cherries and olives so i could deliver them out back of mum's car they are a massive part of what i do in everything that i do and i think i'm an example in the sense that i they see the work ethic and they see the way that i treat people and the way that people react around me because we 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 have um mutual respect for each other and i've always brought them into bars and restaurants and all of the kids birthday parties for years for years were at sweet liberty <laughs> like honestly it was amazing like, you know it was it's it's like we we are part of this community so i think i think um yeah that they very much understand that there are people that show love through service and you treat everybody respectfully. And my eldest, his first job was as a busboy, you know? So, um, you know, it's very, um, it's, it's very much part of what we do and who we are.
1: Yeah. And that's the way to do it. Yeah. And that's how we teach our children is by bringing them into our world. I agree 100%. I can't tell you how many family dinners we've had in the brew house. I can't tell you how many times I've made supper and brought it to the brew house. And so the three of us could sit and eat as a family because I knew Jamie wouldn't be able to come home anytime soon. You know, just always prioritizing that experience and creating memories anyway, anyhow that we could during a crazy busy time in our life. So... I, told, I feel you when you said that you had eight year olds, you know, learning how to drive forklifts, you know, I get it. I totally get
2: it. It's rules, you know, like no phones at the dinner table. And when I'm home, I'm really, it's not like I'm getting home and then going to play golf or something. I, I don't, I'm, I'm full on in the business. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm when I'm home, I'm very, very present. I'm very, very grateful to Kim who my wife, who, who really enables me to, to build the business. While the kids were really young and we're such a partner, have such a great partnership in the, in the raising of our kids and being parts of our community and, and in building this business, it's an impossibility to do anything by yourself. It's just an impossibility. You can't, you can't do it.
1: It's, it would be impossible. No, I agree. Daniel, what is next for you?
2: What is next for me? Well, I'm like a race car driver. I'm doing like 180 miles an hour constantly. (laughs) So I pull over briefly to change my tires, you know, and Mm -hmm. put the tank. And then I'm so right now I have an ambition for the business. And there's this expression, which is generosity and optimism is an old man that plants the seeds of a tree whose branches he knows he may never feel the shade of. So I am the foundation of this business. I'm the foundation of, of this generation of the family, my family. And so I know I'm building something that I may not feel the necessarily the shade of that endeavor. Um, so for me, I'm really, don't think too far in the future. And then I'm in the future all the time. So it's this balance between being a bit of a time traveler, because you have to know where you're going as a business Builder, you have to know what success looks like so that you can drive there, get there, achieve it, scale in the right way in a responsible way. Bring people with you on a journey where they can see progression for themselves within what you're doing if they agree and commit to following you. Like you have to give people a path to where you're going. At the same time, we all know that you have to be present and committed and all of the rest of those things. So I think I don't see life beyond filthy. Um, I don't see life beyond doing what I'm doing now. And it's not about what's next. It's just knowing that I've got to be better than I was yesterday. So I'm super curious. I'm always involved in different things. I try to consume information from lots of different sources and different types of people so that I'm constantly erupted so that I'd never sort of settle or get complacent because I think complacency it, complacency is the death of a lot of things. And so so yeah I'm very dedicated to 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 maintaining my energy and commitment to to everything filthy and and really it's an act of love my commitment to filthy is an act of love to my wife to my kids to the community that I'm in to anybody that's serving a drink while I'm doing this they can they know that it's going to be as good as it can possibly be and so that's all I think about
1: Wow I think that I can say on behalf of the hospitality industry that we're happy that you're that you're out there building a legacy is what you're doing. And I know that so many appreciate it. I know I appreciate it. And I know you say that you're very focused on filthy, but I think filthy will continue to evolve as well. And the reach will continue to get out there in ways that I don't think you have ever dreamed of. And so, you know, that's also my wish for you.
2: Thank you. That's really kind. I really appreciate that. Thank you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, on behalf of the Served Up family, Daniel, I just want to thank you so much for taking time to spend with me. And I want to wish you just a lot of great health and a lot of peace. Thanks for being on the show.
2: Oh, my pleasure. And same to you and your family. Really, it's so kind of you to give me the platform to tell the story and to, you know, to just get to know you a bit better as well thanks for the curiosity and the questions and i wish we had time where i could ask you a load of stuff
1: i know (laughs) another time
2: we will do that over a cocktail at some
0: point
1: we will we will
0: thanks for listening served up is brought to you by southern glazers wine and spirits produced by zunu.online music by We Kill the Lion, can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers!